Hello, and welcome again to another conservative historian podcast. This one entitled, The Top 14 Least Historically Accurate Movies. The date, November 2020. Now you have probably seen this, a number of YouTube videos provide the their views of the least historically accurate movies, but not quite like this list. There's going to be some names of movies you probably haven't heard of or are unaware, and hopefully you'll enjoy this list and our particular view on these least historic movies. Movie makers are always looking for exciting plots, gripping narratives, and compelling stories to convert to the cinema. And why not history, given the plethora of terrific stories? Genghis Khan is a story of a youth of 13, imprisoned and destitute in a backward part of the world, but he rises to become its greatest conqueror. Peter the Great, a six-foot, six-inch monarch who modernized an entire nation, but would later be responsible for his own son's deaths. Or the tragedies that befell Central Africa in the 1990s. History provides no end of interesting narratives to which potential movie makers can convert. And all of those mentioned have been in one form or another converted to film. For example, 2004's Hotel Rwanda used real-life history to depict the horror of this continental-wide calamity. For purposes of this list, we are going to be excluding TV series such as Amazon Prime's Catherine II depiction called The Great. Not only does the show take license with history, Peter III was actually not the son of Peter the Great, but openly admits that they take license with history in the credits. Nor will this list be the same as is one of our previous ones. Those were the six worst historical movies. Those movies, such as Warren Beatty's Reds, celebrated an anodyne version of progressive and social politics to the exclusion of reality. However, at least in John Reed, Reds did depict a form of history. Additionally, these movies are not pure fictional productions like, let's say, Game of Thrones. Even though George R. R. Martin knew his British history, his Westeros bears a striking resemblance to Britain's Isles, including the Night Watch's walls location to that of Hadrian's walls. His Doom of Valeria seems similar to the fall of Rome. Also, his noble houses. Stark sounds a lot like York, and Lannister is more than close to the House of Lancaster of Warren Rose's fame. But these allusions do not mean that Martin claimed his story to ever be any kind of historical narrative, especially with the dragons, magic, and Walking Dead. This list also excludes movies such as The Great Wall, being an overt play to kiss the butt of Chinese society and their communist overlords with a Chinese epic does not necessarily mean history, especially when these movies also contain monstrous creatures with eyes in the back of their heads. Instead, this list is those movies that make a real-life civilization or point in time and then alter it to be nearly meaningless. They are also devoid of the sorcery that pervades many semi-historical epics, such as the Great Wall. Number one, the Dragon Blade. When corrupt Roman leader Tiberius arrives with a giant army to claim the Silk Road, Jackie Chan teams up his army with an elite legion of disaffected Roman soldiers led by General Lucius to protect his country and his new friends. Is this movie ludicrous? 
Not one, but two Roman armies managed to march all the way to Central Asia, where they then encounter a Chinese force led by Jackie Chan. Aside from the fact that these Romans would have had to march through, well, the Parthian Empire, uh, the tribes around uh, Bactria, modern-day Afghanistan, probably some Sarmatian knights, maybe even some Goths, and all of this would have taken them at least a thousand miles from Rome. But this is actually not the real problem with the movie. Now, I can sort of handle Adrian Brody as the villain. I mean, anybody who had seen the Halle Berry kiss would know that. And Jackie Chan is Jackie Chan. Now, its most significant defect is John Cusack as a Roman action hero. Now, we get it. In Gross Point Blank, he played a hitman with martial arts skills. But this was also the John Cusack of Say Anything with the boombox over his head or High Infidelity. In this case, he is a Roman general who is an expert at sword combat and fights off Jackie Chan as if he was an equal. Again, we get it. John Cusack has martial arts skills, or at least he showed them in gross point blank. Plus, Americans in Roman garb, it always seems a little strange. I kept waiting for Matthew Broderick or Ethan Hawke to show up as ninja assassins. But even as much as is that I tend to prefer British playing Romans, I don't know why that is, not all British are cut out to play all Romans. Which leads us to our second movie, The Last Legion. As the Roman Empire crumbles, young Romulus Augustulus flees the city and embarks on a perilous voyage to Britain to track down a legion of supporters. Now, I can handle Colin Firth as an action figure in a Savile Row suit, such as the gentleman spy he portrayed in The Kingsman, but Firth, who is outstanding in a historically accurate film, The King's Speech, is horribly cast as a kick-ass Roman tough guy. John Cusack is more believable. As if the low-budget battles and depictions of the end of the Western Roman Empire were not enough, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, at the end of this movie, the last of the Roman emperors, Romulus Augustus, becomes King Arthur in Britain. What? You read that correctly. A Roman leaves Italy and becomes what was most likely a minor Welsh baron. Number three, the conqueror. Mongol chief Temujin battles against Tartar armies and for the love of the Tartar princess, Bortai. Temujin becomes the emperor, Genghis Khan. This is not a reference to 2007's Mongol, The Rise of Genghis Khan, an impressive movie-making feat. Nor is it 2010's Genghis Khan, nor even the 1965 version with Omar Sharif. No, this is the 1956 movie, The Conqueror, in which John Wayne portrays Temujin. I do not prescribe to the current fetish that only a specific identity or ethnicity can portray one on the screen. An able-bodied actress can depict a disabled figure. Yul Brenner can make a perfectly acceptable King of Siam. But John Wayne? He was great in Old West Calvary roles as over-the-hill Rooster Cogburn and enthralling as Ethan Edwards in The Searchers. But here, he is playing an Asian warlord from the 13th century. Pass on that one. And if you really need that uh, diet of Genghis Khan movies, you have those aforementioned ones from 2007 and 2010. Either of them are infinitely better than this production. Number four, Braveheart. 
Scottish warrior William Wallace leads his countrymen in a rebellion to free his homeland from King Edward I of England's tyranny. This is one that always seems to make these least accurate lists. But part of that was because it was such a blockbuster. Part of it is because everybody can make these types of brave heart references. And part of it is because everyone seems to have made fun of the movie in one form or another. But we're going to uh, delve into some of the historical accuracies here. Let us assume for a moment that Isabella of France, who would wed Edward II of England, was not actually nine when William Wallace died. Let's say she was instead the young woman in the movie Braveheart. Then we have to assume Edward I, one of the shrewdest kings in English history, would send his son's wife up to Scotland to meet with a rebel war leader. Then said queen meets with Wallace, but then is left alone with him so that the two can engage in what Samuel Pepys calls a compromising position. (laughs) And of course, as portrayed by Mel Gibson, Wallace is the virility of a bull. And thus, from that single encounter comes Edward III, conqueror of France, founder of the Order of the Garter, and victor at Cresset. But of course, Isabella was really only nine. Future English queens are not tended to be left alone with Scottish petty nobles, which is what Wallace was. And Scots in the 13th century did not even paint their faces blue, nor sigh, even wear kilts. Other than that, director Gibson nailed it. The 300. The 300 is is another one of these movies that tends to make these lists. Again, a lot of it is, is because the iconic nature of the film. Who can forget, this is Sparta, as he's kicking people into pits. This is King Leonidas. Or who can forget the the epic, give them nothing, take from them everything. There's a lot of that in 300. It gets the blood boiling a little bit just to say that. But then again, I'm a guy, so wondering whether women get that same impression from the movie. The 300 is about King Leonidas of Sparta and a force of 300 men fight the Persians at Thermopylae in 480 B.C. The problem is is that there probably wasn't 300, it was more like 7,000, but again, I digress. I like to watch what I call stupid humor movies. These are these movies that are uh, silly parodies of very serious type movies. It is difficult to go back to the original once one has observed the stupid humor movie if it's done with even a remote amount of humor. Some parody movies do not stand up to the original. The Wayans Family Scary Movie does not make Scream any less horrific or entertaining. But after watching Meet the Spartans, frankly, it was not easy to go back to the 300 and take it seriously. I am not sure whether it was 300s. Again, in the movie, it doesn't even look like 300. It was more like 40. As I had mentioned before, the real Leonidas army is probably about 7,000. And in this movie, these 300, again, it looks like 40, take on an army of about, oh, 100,000, including 10,000 immortals, the Persian elite guard, and these 300 beat the living heck out of these guys. Maybe it was Xerxes as an eight-foot-tall giant with an auto-tuned bass voice. Perhaps it was the Spartans not wearing armor. Okay, the fight scenes are kind of cool, and I'm usually up for kicking insolent, arrogant fools into bottomless pits, but as for historical accuracy, not so much. Number six, King Arthur. Now, for our purposes, I'm discussing the 2004 version, the one that had Kira Knightley and Clive Owen. It was described as a demystified take on the tale of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. 
The film is somewhat unusual in reinterpreting Arthur as a Roman officer rather than a medieval knight. But frankly, when you have King Arthur movies, the historical inaccuracies could apply to pretty much any story involving Arthur. First off, he probably did not even exist. Sorry, Arthurian fans. Assuming there was an Arthur and he was a king, it would have been king in the southwest Wales or something far less significant. After the fall of the Roman Empire, a number of petty nobles throughout the land organized themselves and called themselves king. And we're talking about like little small areas like the entire area of Devon. That guy was a king. I'm a king. You're a king. Everyone's a king. That's probably what Arthur was. He was more than likely in Wales and more than likely ruled over a petty kingdom. There was not, though, a king of England, at least until probably maybe the grandson of King Alfred, and that would have been somewhere around the late 900s. And there was definitely not a king of England who was also named Arthur, who ruled the entire of Britain. And he was undoubtedly not an ex-Roman official who a group of woads would later proclaim their ruler over any of their own people. 10,000 B.C. In the prehistoric past, Delay is a mammoth hunter who bonds with the beautiful Evelet. When warriors on horseback capture Evelet and the tribesmen, Delay must embark on an odyssey to save his true love. I almost moved this movie to the Great Wall Realm, a fantasy movie that borrows from real-life stuff. Historically, there were pyramids, woolly mammoths, early man, and saber-toothed tigers, just not all at the same time. The archaeological record is pretty clear that mammoths were not instrumental in building the pyramids, which, by the way, the big ones were constructed around 2500 B.C., not 10,000. And like the 300, there was another weird bass voice guy as the villain. I'm not really sure what it is about bad historical epics and having weird auto-tuned bass voice villains. I would just look at the cast of Game of Thrones. Charles Dance, who played Tywin Lannister, or the guy who played Roose Bolton, have super cool, deep voices. Why don't you just hire them? Number 8. Pocahontas An English soldier and a Powhatan chief's daughter share a romance when English colonists invade 17th century Virginia. It is not as if I look to Disney cartoons for historical accuracy. And this is not a knock on animation. Given the cost of large casts, giant sets, and even CGI, animation has massive, untapped potential for recreating history. An example of this was the fictitious scene in Mulan, and this is referring to the cartoon version, where the Huns attack the wintry mountainside. Looking at that scene, I imagine what animation could do with a, a battle like Elysia or a sea battle like Lepanto. Since Pocahontas was an actual historical figure, Disney decided to make this about as real life, well, as Disney ever will be. The problem was, when the English showed up, the real Pocahontas was a child, not the athletomotel hottie portrayed in this version. And of course, being dizzy, you get an anthropomorphic raccoon. It was probably a stretch to think of Pocahontas as a sort of proto-Greta Thunberg with this movie's environmental sensibilities. And then, of course, the scene where John Smith sails away and Pocahontas stays. The real Pocahontas actually did marry an Englishman and then went to England, where she died at the age of 22. Disneyfied happy endings. The real Pocahontas, not as much of a happy ending. Number nine, Gladiator. 
A former Roman general sets out to exact vengeance against the corrupt emperor who murdered his family and sent him into slavery. What is it about movies and the Roman Empire? Why is it that nobody sets out to actually make a historically accurate Roman Empire movie? This is even the second time that this period around Marcus Aurelius and the accession of his son Commodus was depicted. Now think about real Roman history. Rome gave us Sulla, Pompey, Caesar, Augustus, Caligula, Nero, and of course the aforementioned Marcus Aurelius. All of these real-life figures have incredibly entertaining stories. There is no need for embellishment or creating fictional characters out of whole cloth. Now, as far as his gladiator is concerned, given that Marcus Aurelius made his son Commodus co-emperor at least three years before his death, there was little to no evidence that Commodus himself personally murdered his father, as happens in the movie. And without that catalyst, the movie itself simply doesn't make any sense. Number 10, Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs takes us behind the scenes of the digital revolution to paint a portrait of the man at its epicenter. First off, I want to say that this isn't the Ashton Kutcher Jobs movie. This story unfolds backstage at three iconic product launches, ending in 1998 with the IMAX unveiling. Now, like many of the movies on this list, I really enjoyed the film. For all his liberalism and tendency for all of his characters to sound exactly like each other, Aaron Sorkin is still master of the memorable phrase, and there are a bunch on order here. But it is implausible that the three product launches depicted here went off as shown in the movie Steve Jobs. It is everything from disgraced former Apple CEO John Scully showing up not once, but twice to product premieres at the company that ousted him. And though in real life, Jobs did reconcile with his out-of-wedlock daughter Lisa, the ending, though pretty cool, seems a stretch at best. Number 11, The Social Network. As Harvard student Mark Zuckerberg creates the social networking site that would become known as Facebook, he faces issues by the twins who claimed he stole their idea and by the co-founder who was later squeezed out of the business. As noted above, Sorkin has both a way with words and bending the truth to fit a narrative. Some reasonably large changes were made in this movie. For example, Eduardo Severn was not quite the victim as portrayed here, nor was Zuckerberg quite the monster. And the famous scene with the lawyers where Zuckerberg cannot answer their questions because he was too self-important is more than likely apocryphal. It is always one of the challenges when one is, is doing a figure who is very much alive and is still active. It's not as if Marcus Aurelius is raising his hand and saying to the, to the gladiator folks, hey, wait a minute, guys, I told Commodus he could be emperor next. He didn't kill me. As with Steve Jobs, I actually really enjoyed the movie, but do not take it for historical accuracy. Number 12, Iron Lady. An elderly Margaret Thatcher talks to her recently deceased husband's imagined presence as she struggles to come to terms with his death while scenes from her past life, from girlhood to British Prime Minister, intervene. Yes, that's exactly right. Margaret Thatcher, who is one of the most significant figures of the late 20th century, and in my, uh, we'll say, a little biased conservative belief system, would say that Margaret Thatcher was the greatest prime minister since Churchill. 
Yes, they don't portray her that Margaret Thatcher. No, instead, they portray her in her dotage, wandering around, suffering from senility and dementia. This movie was a clear case of them trying to diminish Margaret Thatcher as a historical record. And that in and of itself shows that uh, the accuracy here is wanting. Whether it was revitalizing Britain, reasserting English stature abroad, or confronting communism, Thatcher was an incredible presence for 11 years during her prime ministership. So, assuming you wish to tarnish her legacy, you would portray her in her senility as she is portrayed here. Was she senile at the end? More than likely. But by calling it Iron Lady and not Iron Lady in her dotage or Iron Lady in her senility gives you a sense of what the filmmakers were really trying to achieve. Number 13, any of the Robin Hood movies. Because Robin Hood productions always include real-life figures, such as Richard the Lionhearted and Prince John, there is always this sense that what you're seeing is history being portrayed. Now, in the case of John, he was always a problematic figure. He had revolted against their father and brought this level of loyalty to Richard. So there was definitely content for drama among the Plantagenets. But the real Robin Hood stuff is more likely fictional. Additionally, these movies always seem to be uniformly poor. Kevin Costner teaming up with a Moorish warrior from the Crusades? Highly plausible stuff, that one. There was more reality in Mel Brooks's epical Men in Tights. And finally, number 14, The Lion in Winter. It is 1183 A.D., King Henry II's three sons all want to inherit the throne, but he won't commit to a choice. They and his wife variously plot to force him. Now, unlike Iron Lady, there are several movies on this list that I thoroughly enjoyed, including Gladiator, despite its historical inaccuracies. But I love, love Lion and Winter. A director who had Catherine Hepburn and Peter O'Toole as their leads would almost have to try to make this thing bad. I would have paid a movie ticket to watch these actors, along with Anthony Hopkins and Timothy Dalton, sit around and have coffee with each other. The dialogue is sparkling, the acting superb, the stakes are for a sprawling kingdom, actually two sprawling kingdoms. The problem is that the Christmas meeting that took place in Shino in 1183 never really happened. No locking up and threatening the lives of Henry's three wayward sons, no probable divorce from Eleanor of Aquitaine, and sorry LGBTQ community, no love affair between Richard the Lionhearted and Philip Augustus or at least any that has ever been confirmed. Was Richard gay? Probably. Did he have a tryst with Philip? Probably not. This list is not about bad movies, or movies that are trying to score political points. Instead, this is a list of great films, such as Lion and Winter, and some guilty pleasures, such as Braveheart, that are fun, but just not historical. For that, take another look at Lincoln. I have watched it about seven times, and it never gets old. This is Bell Avis. Thank you for listening to another Conservative Historian Podcast.